This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot, providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft, such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. Knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have even tried the landing, but at that point, I hadn't really experienced real true kind of downdraft stuff. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden, and today we've got a treat for you. Our guest is Thomas Middleditch, actor, comedian, screenwriter, You probably know him best for his role as CEO Richard Hendricks in the hit HBO series Silicon Valley. He's also recently launched a Netflix improv comedy series with Ben Schwartz. But now you're going to know him as general aviation pilot. Thomas, thanks so much for your time and welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So do you mind if we start with, uh, well, where are you today, first of all, on this? We're doing this during this whole quarantine kind of period, which is kind of strange. So where do we find you today? Yeah, uh, I'm in uh, I'm in LA at my house, um, just hanging out, taking calls, pretty much treating every day like some bizarre endless weekend. Yeah, which, which <laughs> kind of it is. Step to tough to remember what day it is. So. Yeah, yeah. I think I maybe genuinely don't know what day it is right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. So if you don't mind, let's start with your general aviation flying. Like, how did when did you get into general aviation flying? How'd you get into it? Well. It didn't really crystallize for me that what I kind of wanted to do until sort of my late 20s. Like as a teenager, I've always been like a big gamer. And as a teenager, I started getting the flight simulators stuff, but not um, like uh, Flight Simulator 10 or anything like that. More of the combat ones like IL-2, which is like a World War II dogfighting game, or recently uh, DCS, which is uh, like jet fighters and stuff like that. I really liked all the systems and the and the tactics and all that. And that was, that became like a very important part of my gaming repertoire. And then through that, and then through just being kind of a fan of military history and reading a bunch of fighter pilot memoirs and stuff, it just really became a thing in my mind as something I wanted to do. And then in my late twenties, I thought, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. And I went to a flight school and I kept getting motion sick so I gave up <laughs> and uh, then sort of mid mid thirties, I was like, it was a new year's resolution. I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself a much bigger time window to try and beat the motion sickness. 
it had been about three months of only being able to go up for like 15 minutes at a time. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I just stick to uh, the virtual dogfighting. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll just be a virtual pilot. And then my brain sort of like, I don't know, figured, figured it out a bit. So it was like it was down to the wire. But yeah, I guess through flight simulators, military history, and then time and money is also a big thing. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll chat about this. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is just the ability to, to get through training and then to maintain your proficiency given the kind of schedule you must have these days with running a hit series and launching a Netflix and, you know, the whole thing. How you do that uh, would be helpful to all of us GA pilots because we're always struggling with time and money, right? We never have as much time and money as we want to put into our flying and our airplanes. Well, it's weird. I would say, like, I would say that in, uh, a profession that is pretty suited to being a general aviation pilot it, is acting because you have, you have time where, sure, it's pretty busy and, you know, you may just get up, may get up that weekend if you move some stuff around and make, make sure you can. But then sometimes in between jobs, you have weeks <laughs> of time where you don't you can focus. have, yeah. yeah, you don't have too much to do. And now when uh, my comedy partner, Ben, and I tour with our show, I'll fly there. And I, I worked hard to get that instrument rating, which is such a challenge, especially I'm not the best student. So like studying is like a real chore for me. But now that has really opened up the possibilities of getting to gigs, which has increased my flight hours substantially, which is very exciting. Whereas before I'd be like, boy, I really hope it's nice weather so I can right, you know, yeah. fly. But then there's no guarantee I'll get back or whatever. You know, it's just a little bit trickier. But I would say if you had the money and the means and you wanted to fly more, definitely get your instrument rating. It 100% allows you to fly more. I agree with you. And I also agree with you. It's one of the more demanding things I've done in my flying is an instrument rating because it's the combination of the book knowledge, which can get very complicated. Oh, it's And insane. then the flying procedures, which you have to be able to recall them, you know, immediately when you're flying. And we have a person here who did some improv in college. And that's, that's a big uh, focus of yours and a big part of your career is improv. So I have to ask you, do you see any like uh, sort of parallels between uh, what you have to do in improv and the ability to react very quickly and to think creatively? Do you see any kind of those parallels with the, with flying? Maybe in terms of like quick thinking, but I would actually say that flying, especially instrument flying, is a very structured way of doing things. Yeah. Where is is improv? There's a lot of philosophy that you can get. Like let's just say improv for performance in comedy. There's a lot of kind of philosophy that you first learn when you're first starting out, and it ends up feeling like structure. But then the lines get blurred, and you can kind of go wherever you want. Part of I think maybe part of why I like flying and instrument flying is like there's procedures and things. It tells you exactly what what to do. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't mind like. I think this probably happens more than any pilot admits is like, you know, you, you, you maybe skipped a step or you uh, got out of an altitude at the wrong time or whatever. You kind of bungle the procedure a little bit and ATC has to kind of like, so, you know, that was not supposed to be how it went. As long as it's minor, I really don't mind it because it, it reminds it. You learn. That's how you kind of like, Oh, cool. Well, on this three hours of cross country, I'm going to pour over these, uh, these flight charts to make sure I don't do that again. But I like the structure and I like, like, I like nailing it. I like getting it exactly how the chart told me to do it and nothing went wrong. It feels very 
very gratifying. Tell me this, the gratifying feeling, do you still remember it? You got your instrument rating the first time you go out and you get your ticket wet, you're in the clouds, and you penetrate through, you fly an approach, and you come out, and there's the runway. Is that not one of the most gratifying feelings there is in life? It's so cool. I mean, even just the idea of, of I remember that, that from when you're first learning, when you're first going to IMC, that feeling of like, oh boy, when you're coming into a cloud and then you just, you're in it and now you can't see anything. It's just very exciting. And the fact, I think it's like, it's pride knowing that you know what to do. Yeah. Before instrument training, you view these clouds as like total enemies to be avoided at all costs. They kill you. You go in there, you die. You, know, you get icing and you plummet to the earth. Yeah. You know, it's, they seem so insanely menacing. Honestly, I think instructors put a little spin on it to keep you away, right? Yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah. yeah. And then uh, once you get that instrument rating, I mean, I'm, currently I have a very capable plane, a, a DA42-6, oh, nice. yeah. like mm -hmm. latest thing, like all this TKS business. So I, there, there's a lot less worry but if I had just the gauges to just be instrument qualified and I would be going to, maybe I'd be a little bit more apprehensive because you do have to worry about a lot of things. But it's, it's just cool to know what to do and to know how to do it. Yeah, I agree with you. It is a, a, to realize you, you got in those clouds intentionally and you know how to deal with it and you're trained to do something. It's a very tangible step that you see yourself moving to. So I agree with you. And also just like there's lots of cool things about flying, lots of things that that make you want to do it again. I mean, to me, one of those aspects of the little pie chart is kind of the beauty that you see up there. And to me, the sky, the world is much more dramatic with yeah. a little bit of cloud in there, <laughs> you know? And it's, you know, when you get to land at like pretty notoriously cloudy, rainy, wet cities, like places in Washington or Oregon or something, and you, you can go down there. You can't just be like, I don't get to do my trip. You can do it and you get to land and it's still... It's gray above yeah. you. It's, it's, it's exciting. It makes the, the sky w and through which you yeah, want to travel yeah, more I dramatic. Agree. So I got ahead of myself a little bit. I want to go back and talk about, like, what did you start flying in 172s? You, so you, you were able to defeat the air sickness, which, by the way, a, a, lot, of, a lot more people had that than, than is realized. I think my daughter, when I was teaching her to fly, we, we did the same thing. We'd go up for short intervals, you know, until uh, she could just get used to it and get over the motion sickness. So you finally worked through that, and were you in a 172 or? Let's say I took an intro flight lesson in a Piper Archer, and then the school that I learned at Vista Aviation at Whiteman Airport, uh, they have 172s, and they even had a retractable 172 that was always kind of like in for maintenance. I think the RGs <laughs> have trouble with their gear, yeah, and also students like you know <laughs> landing them all janky. But uh, from that, I I. Got a Diamond DA40, just, you know, like a kind of like a basic one with those that like a Gen 1 G1000 in it, which was nice. It was like, oh, cool. You can really see mm -hmm. where you're going. So you did that right after your license. You got your license in a 172 or did you get the DA40 before? I got the DA40, honestly, within the last month of my training. I took my check ride in the 40, actually. I just did a quick sort of transition and, and did it. I was fortunate enough that at that point I had, you know, I had the scratch to just like buy some, buy airplanes and stuff. Yep. So I realized that's a little, that's, that's lucky. I flew that around for a bit, a year and a half or so. And then I got a Marchetti 260. Yeah. I saw that. Well, yeah. <laughs> Talk about a rocket, it, man. It, it was, it's cool. Uh, yeah. it, 
it really is, uh, I got it with lofty ambitions because a, you know, as I said, what got me into flying was all this military aviation. And I just wanted, I wanted a connection to that and I wasn't going to go buy a P-51 or anything. So that's a great connection because it was flown or maybe still by the Philippines, the Italian air force, the Turkish air force. I think at one time it was listed as the fastest production piston aircraft, uh, in production. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not so more, it's not, you know, things can beat it. But yeah, you can get 175, 180, you know, true. Was yours the turboprop version or uh, the straight piston? No, yeah, no, the just 540, the, and, the Lycoming and, 540. Yes, and uh, it was painted crazy. The previous owner was pretty eccentric, I think, and my particular airplane was painted like a clown car. Definitely did not inspire <laughs> a, a military pedigree. But it was actually a really cool plane. No autopilot, but like you know. It was pretty good at cross country. A little loud, but it could kind of do it could kind of do whatever you want. And what was neat is like that was the first time I've, I experienced a plane that can like just kind of yeah. do stuff. And I had ambitions of learning aerobatics, but it's so brutal. I mean, you really have to be dedicated. Yeah. If yeah. you're if you're like me and prone to sickness, you have to kind of be at. It, it kind of has to turn into a part time job and a part time job that is excruciating yeah <laughs> it like ruins it's your another day. level yeah oh it's too crazy the recovery from it is hours afterwards if not a whole day so i was humbled and i kind of i gave that up and said you know maybe i'm not a pi- fighter pilot after all but hey i'm a bomber <laughs> pilot. <laughs> in yeah. my mind but those things are uh they, yeah that's a rocket those things are really really fun i mean Super very fun. versatile you know um and it got good range where like 1200 mile range or something like that i think yeah, you can definitely go places. And honestly, if you have, if you don't have people that want to fly with you, or if you just have like you and one other, I couldn't recommend it more. Yeah. Cause it's cool. It's a head turner. It does kind of, it does whatever you want in a tight sort of situation. Say you, I don't know, you, you have to avoid something or I'm just thinking safety wise, as opposed to anything that you'd voluntarily get into. Yeah. You can just do it. You just slip out of there. It handles turbulence like crazy. It's just sort of just slices right through it. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> a really like clean airframe. Yeah. And it's got pretty good wing loading. So it absorbs that, that turbulence pretty well. Yeah. 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 And there's a few things you got to learn when you're, when you're learning it and, ch- and getting checked out in it. There's some fuel tank management that you really got to be aware of, but I think once you learn how to handle it, it kind of does anything you want it to. It, I, I really love it. I just sold it. I just. Oh, I, did you? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was, I got to a point where I had multiple airplanes and I, I really don't have the time to do that. So yeah. I just, I finally got my, the DA 42 after a Bonanza, even all these planes in between. And I just got rid of them all. Okay. So did, you're, you're down to the DA 42 is the only one you, you have now. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you sold the Bonanza and the, and the Marchetti. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So some of the stuff you mentioned that was influential in your background, the fighter pilot memoirs and stuff. Well, first of all, your description of your Marchetti reminds me of, you know, Richard Bach, the author, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and a bunch of really good books on aviation. He's really influential to me when I was growing up. He was notorious for flying around in a T-33 with daisies on it. <laughs> you know, so, so your Marchetti probably didn't have daisies and flowers on it, though, right? No, but it did feel like uh, it always made me th- think of... Um, Eddie Rickenbacker's memoir, Fighting the Flying Circus, mm. and it just made me think of, and I, you know, you see all the pictures of all the, that, that particular German squadron, they're all crazy colors. Yeah. And it just, it did make me think I was some kind of, I, I was a, I was a Bosch pilot. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are some of the other uh, favorite memoirs that uh, you read that you remember that were sort of influential in your aviation oh. 
Let's see. I like Fighter Pilot, uh, Robin Olds. Robin Olds' book, yeah. It's really a good yeah, book. Yeah, that's awesome. I got. I have to go over now because uh, what are they called? I think it's called the Wild Weasels or something mm. about the 105 yeah. squadrons that were you know dodging sams and so yeah. that's like yeah, it's real white knuckle stuff yeah the dam busters book i forget i know there are a bunch so i'm trying to think of the one that i'm thinking of but i think it was a recent publication this is some great especially reading stories about those guys flying thunder chiefs man you know you, yeah. you talk about a mission you talk about <laughs> you talk about some guts i know <laughs> the people who make dcs if anyone who's listening is familiar with that that's that flight simulator that doesn't you know jets and all that stuff and I'm like, you you got to do a Vietnam era, you know, yeah. one, the Thunder Chief just have an RCO in the back doing his thing. It'll be cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you're Canadian born. So did you grow up watching the Snowbirds and as, as a kid or? I didn't. I was born in a pretty like crunchy hippie town. And I was fortunate because it's been my career. I was involved in like community theater and improv and all that kind of stuff. So that was like my passion. And there was an air cadet squadron in my hometown, which is. Boy Scouts for the RCAF, essentially. I wish I had checked it out, because I think that would have been a lot of fun, and I would have been able to fly earlier in life. Hey, listeners. Do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. I think you were talking about a story where you were flying your Marchetti, and you went into UT-25, and so there's a pretty interesting... Yeah, yeah, that's Monument there. Valley. So first of all, I was looking that up as before we got on here in Monument Valley. looks like a really cool place uh, to go into, but it's pretty remote. What, were you, what are you going to Monument Valley for? Well, it, honestly, it was like one of these long weekend type things. So I said to uh, my partner, I said, hey, let's let's go there because we'd had some fun. Yeah. You know, I think by that time I'd flown into um, Sedona, Arizona, which has got that cool airport with a mesa there and the restaurant. It's like, oh, man, this is neat. The Red Rocks. And so I just wanted more of that. So you were doing like the rest of us GA pilots do. You were just out looking to fly your airplane, have some adventure, go to someplace yeah. new and fun and... Yeah, and there was a, like a kind of like a bed and breakfast near that area, and you could do these tours and stuff. And I, you know, seeing pictures of Monument Valley just looked really cool. Like in Canada, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like these like red rock pillars, yeah. <laughs> you know, sweeping Martian. It looks like Mars, right? Yeah. yeah. Insane. And so, yeah, I called ahead to the airport and got it all squared away. And, you know, sometimes you look at sort of like turbulence air mets and you go oh boy okay let's brace ourselves and you get up and it's really not that bad and you're like why was there an air med here this is nothing and so i was feeling very confident i saw the the trap yeah i saw (laughs) the turbulence air mets and i was like oh they usually they issue that for anything (laughs) like (laughs) you know get up there and flew over and we had this these incredible tailwinds like 30 knot tailwinds and i was like see this isn't bad this is awesome and then once we got into that sort of valley, with because it, it's all these kind of like undulations, right, in, yeah. the, in the surface of the earth, that's when the turbulence hit and really had to reduce power and getting bumped around and sort of thinking, okay, well, this could be a kind of a tricky landing, but, you know, you can land in some bumpy stuff. You can do it. And uh, I f- 
got the airport in sight. And so the airport at UT25 is really kind of situated in a bizarre, in a bizarre spot. Yeah. It is almost like perpendicular to a cliff face. Yeah. So there's this cliff face, and then it goes a little bit, and then there's this little airstrip. And what was happening was the airflow was falling off this cliff face and using that cliff face to create a pretty severe downdraft. Mm-hmm. And when I sort of did my midfield cross to sort of line up for the downwind, then do the approach, I felt something. It was like, whoa, like uh, just a little jolt there, just kind of a, a jolt. Yeah. You know, it really yeah. kind of, it really kind of put, we lost some altitude. And in my, at that point, I was thinking, knowing what I know now, I would have, I wouldn't have even tried the landing. But at that point, I hadn't really experienced real true kind of downdraft stuff. So I thought, okay, well, let's line up for the final anyway, and I'll abort if it doesn't look good. And you're landing to, I think you land to the south there going into Monument Valley. Is that right? Or were you landing north? I'm not sure of the direction. It was to the cliff face. Yeah, so okay. you, we line up, and you're going into all that wind. You know, okay, that's what you want. You want to go into the wind. So there you go. Line up for the final, and it's, I, I give myself about a three-mile final. And pretty quickly on, I'm getting blown off the center line and at that point i didn't have too much you know experience with like um sort of max component crosswind landings so i was like i, I was fighting way too hard yeah. i had my wife in the sea and she was like nervous as hell so i was like you know what let's abort this and uh full power gear up and this downdraft is still pushing us down and by this point because it's like all that wind just slamming off the cliff face and at this point, the runway is like to my right and behind, and I am, you know, three, two hundred feet off the just the desert ground, full throttle, and still sinking. At that point, I have my hand on the flaps because in the Marchetti, you can do it in increments. It's not like settings. You're just wait, 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 and I'm just occasionally I'm just looking at the speed. You know, stall horns going off, and I'm just sort of bit by bit by bit by bit trading speed because i knew that if i was going to get out from under this thing i couldn't only be doing you know that max sort of lift i had to get that speed in order so i wouldn't stall out right where did you get that was that in your training because that would that's an easy mistake that pilots make sometimes in that situation is they keep trying to pull out of it they keep trying to pull the nose up and it's not going to get you out of it you know, and we always say when you get into a crisis, you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to fall back to your training and proficiency. So somewhere in there, you were falling back to some really good training or experience that you had. This is going to sound so dorky, but I think it had a lot to do with all that. Like the maybe thousands of hours that I've put into my flight simulator training, like combat stuff, like dogfighting. Because when you do that stuff, I know these simulators are not perfect. They're not the real thing. But they do, you learn, when you're trying to be on, when you're trying to like go online and beat other people in dogfighting, <laughs> you want to learn the tactics, right? You want to learn about energy yeah. and how you can trade for speed and how you lose energy in tight turns. It's just stuff that like you would do in a Spitfire against a Messerschmitt, but not really yeah. in a Cessna. You know what? That's excellent training. And when my son was learning to fly, I ended up teaching him to fly. But I was a fighter pilot in the Air Force, so I saw him get online. He was doing the same thing. That's how he kind of got into it. So he would say, Dad, this guy just keeps waxing my tail. And so I sat down with him one night. I said, all right, here's what we got to do, you know. And you really learn how to manage your airspeed and manage your energy like you're talking about 
It really is uh, helpful. That's, that's really interesting that you sort of picked up that SA from just doing that in those simulations. You talk about energy so much in dogfight. Altitude equals energy, speed equals energy. You want energy, right? And if you're stalling, it means you have none. Yeah. And you trade, you can trade, if you suddenly got a jolt of speed, that's energy. But that's, I mean, if you're firewalled, how else are you going to get it? And you can trade altitude for energy. So I knew I was losing altitude and I knew I had to get speed. So flaps give you lift, but they also take away your speed. So you just have to trade all these things. And with the few hundred feet left, you're trading a little bit. And I figured at least that, okay, it's this cliff face that's giving me this massive downwash. So if I kind of like get out from under there and trade altitude and flaps and keep the lift and all this little management that I could do, I'll get out from under it. And sure enough, I did. But I mean, genuinely, I think the knowledge of that is probably baked into the millions of stupid maneuvers that I've done, you know, like <laughs> dogfighting online at 200 feet AGL and then stalling out and spinning into the ground. Like it's all those mistakes I did virtually that probably gave me a little yeah. bit of situational awareness there. It's so important because it's counterintuitive because you're sinking your full power and your instinct will tell you to pull away from the ground, but you actually have to nose over as you did to increase your airspeed to get the energy to climb back out of it. I think you'd be able to probably um, word this better, but if you have maximum power and your stall horn's going up, there, you don't have any more power to pull up and keep going. Right. It just doesn't work like that. You just, there is a maximum threshold for thrust that any airplane can get. And at one point, you have to remember that if you can't go any faster, the only way you're going to go faster is to nose down. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. There's probably a better technical way of saying that. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good way to say it. You know, we would say reduce your angle of attack and, you know, mm -hmm. there's a couple other ways. But but that's really ultimately what you're doing is, you know, lowering your nose and, and trading some of that potential energy for kinetic energy. Right. Yeah. That's the way we used to speak about it in the old days there. And so was there any indication going in there? Like were the winds at altitude particularly strong? Or, you know, we typically say be careful in mountainous terrain when you see uh, wind above 30 knots. In hindsight, as you look back on it, what are some of your lessons learned on how to, how to not get in the situation? The tricky thing was is UT-25 has no weather reporting whatsoever. Coming out of LA, it, wasn't, it was smooth. Uh, you get up to cruising altitude, which for me at that time was probably... I probably went a little higher than like the, the Marchetti performs best at because there were such crazy tailwinds. Let's say I was in, I was somewhere around 10,000, like 9 to 11 kind of thing. And that was smooth because I think the turbulence was low level. It was like smooth the whole way through until we started descending and feeling the topography of the ground. And that's when the winds started to matter. And... Honestly, I was bumping around in there, but I'm thinking, this is the Marchetti. It, it kills this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the first sign that I should have done something else was over that midfield, that midfield, what am I trying to say, cross. Yeah, when, when you cross midfield, you yeah. get in the downwind. Yeah, yeah. When, when everything kind of was like, whoa, what was that? That big sort of like dip. And maybe should have just kind of said, 
let's go to the backup airfield. But it's really hard to make those. And I think in hindsight, the, the thing that is um, sobering is it's really difficult to see into the future because at that time, you only kind of know what you know. And you're thinking, okay, well, what's wrong with giving it a shot and going around if things don't go right? You have no idea that there's this invisible hand pushing your aircraft in the direction, <laughs> you know? I think that's probably the biggest thing because inevitably I ended up going to another airport called is Page, Arizona. And it was bumpy going in, a little bit windy, but totally manageable. Yeah. Um, so the trip, if that was our original destination, the trip totally could have been done. And the most we would have experienced is some bumps going in. So it's not as if I would have said, oh, I should have scrubbed the trip when I saw the, the airmat, because that's not necessarily true. I could have totally made it. It's yeah. that it was that specific airfield of like it's private no weather reporting and there's like an air met around i think maybe if some, if there's something like that and you haven't landed there before maybe choose your backup instead and just being bumped up against that cliff like that where that wind is going to come over that and create that dynamic there right is uh, yeah the other positive lesson learned coming out of that is you get surprised you're in this situation you're at full power in a marchetti and still sinking your wife is in the airplane with you, which to me is always a little bit more stressful when I have family with me. But you just kind of rely on your training in this place where you're sinking at full power. You nose over to get that added energy and then just slowly kind of work your way out of it and then edge your way out of the downdraft. So that was some good reaction on your part under pressure there. I felt fortunate to have an airplane that was very agile and that had 260 horsepower and that had incremental flaps. Because, you know, these stressful situations, they kind of get, like, ingrained in your mind. Well, certain details, at least. And I just remember riding those flaps just bit, 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 as opposed to dumping it from, you know, whatever, 40 to 15 or some, you know, how what are the, some yeah. of these planes have, you know, big jumps in their yeah. divots. Yeah. That was that was nice. I remember landing and <laughs> my wife went to the bathroom and had like <laughs> like trauma <laughs> a trauma bathroom experience. Uh, I was a little shaky myself just being like, well, that was kind of crazy, but there was also a moment of like, man, I did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I'm so I'm glad I learned that and she was not keen to get in the plane going back, but I was like, man, don't you realize like there's so much knowledge that was just gained. This is yeah. great. I love flying. Like it yeah. could have gone so the other way, but I get, I feel fortunate. That I get to kind of go that it's an entirely a positive experience for me. Well, and I'm so thankful, Thomas, that you're willing to help share this story so people can learn from it. Cause I think that's a big part of aviation and our safety culture is that we all kind of share our experiences doing this hangar talk stuff yeah. where we can put ourselves in the situation without actually flying the situation. So you know, we have some level of experience if we ever see something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glossing over the many times that I've, you know, flubbed over the radios or uh, made my procedure turn a little early or whatever. You know, I'm like, Whew, yeah. You know, I tell people, if you fly a lot, which, which a lot of us have the privilege of doing, you're going to make mistakes, especially if you're pushing yourself and going to new places and trying to do different styles of flying. You're going to make mistakes. And what you hope is you have the experience and the training to fly yourself out of them. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. There's so many little details in aviation, and it's really hard to get lost in the shuffle, the, the minor things. I mean, I feel very, I, I really like, for example, before in all the previous aircrafts, once I kind of got the flow of the aircraft, I kind of wouldn't use checklists. It was a bad behavior. And in this 42, the checklists are built into this, like, into the G1000 deck. So 
I just make a habit of this, like, I'll just pop it on the screen, bit, bop, bop, just check through them, and it's a good thing I do. It's, I think, uh, I know it's kind of dorky maybe, but checklists are good because <laughs> there's so many things yeah. to juggle. It really is. Yeah. I mean, obviously, some things you can work into your flow and actually think that's good practice in certain tasks so that you're not like, oh, wow, this is a stressful situation. Let me bring out my sheet. No, some things you got to know. <laughs> right, yeah. But... You know, for procedure stuff, especially instrument flying, there's just like lots of stuff and just get a checklist yeah. or have an acronym and just make sure you take it off. Yeah, yeah. They'll keep you out of trouble. 99 times out of 100, you don't need it. But that 100th time that you forget something critical, you'll kind of wish, why didn't I just pull out the checklist? Exactly. And you, you're, you've got so many things in your mind, even things that aren't even aviation too, you know. So you'll just kind of forget something. I mean, there's how many times for me, I'll be flying along and it'll be like a good 10 minutes into the journey. I'll be like, oh, whoops, my gear's down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just like, what am I doing here? Where was my head at? You know? Yeah. I used to do that in my Super Cub. It's, it's one of the most simple airplanes you can fly. The only thing you have to maneuver is the flaps. That's it. So I'd practice a, you know, take off and take off with some flaps down. I'd be flying around going, man, it's going slow today. And I've had the flaps down since take. It was the only thing I had to do after takeoff was <laughs> right. raise the flaps. Right. And I'd forget to do it because I'd get distracted, you know. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, just, just being in those flows and going back through them. And it only takes a few seconds. So, yeah. Well, hey, I want to thank you so much. Wish you the best of luck in your Netflix series on the improv comedy special. That's some pretty good stuff. I've seen the trailer coming out of that. It looks like a lot of fun. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the response has been really kind of special. People have been digging it. There's three of them. They're all to completely improvised. It's like about three hours of controlled insanity. It's a good time. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a lot of fun. Well, uh, Thomas, is there anything else you wanted to chat about today or anything else in your flying or GA flying that you think our members would find interesting? I don't know. I think right now I'm just trying to look for reasons to fly. I mean, some of it's just joyriding because it's interesting. You go, you're like, oh, I could go overnight someplace. But then it's like, well, where am I going to stay? So there's just a lot of like uh, right now, at least I've been sort of picking a few just random airports that I kind of wouldn't necessarily stay overnight at anyway. But yeah. just to like fly, walk around, see what's up, bring my face mask, that kind of thing. There's also encourage, even if you can't kind of book a flight for stuff, there's all kinds of organizations that, you know, you can volunteer your plane and your time to go do it, like Pilots for Paws, the Transport Pets, and what's this, Lightwing or something that does environmental stuff. I think if you're looking for, like, you're like, you've got that weekend or you've got that time, you're just looking for that motivation to get up and flying, you can always lend your time and your airplane to some causes and get some missions and you have like a mission yeah. you tick that off your list <laughs> yeah, that's right yeah it's great yeah well so what's next you're going to get a seaplane rating or uh any uh anything you got one already or what's no in terms of ratings i wouldn't mind uh the tail wheel that sounds pretty yeah. cool yeah a seaplane man that'd be neat especially if i for some reason you know have to move back up to british columbia canada where i'm from that's the type of flying i would love to do just because there's lakes and rivers and all kinds of stuff all over the place it would be so cool to hop around on on, on something like that or even a like a robinson you know 44 or something just land and wherever there's a couple of youtubers that <laughs> i think one guy's out of vancouver he's a beard and he has a bulldog i forget his name but yeah he flies robinson all over the place it looks so, it's just so fun 
I got to tell you that seaplane flying, it's tough to do that and, and not have a smile on your face and giggle throughout <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. That is so much fun to land on water. Are you a boat? Are you an airplane? You're kind of both. Uh, it's, man, that's a ton of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Right now, I'm really excited about the multi and the instrument and just going kind of bigger distances in this 42. When the time comes, and the, I wouldn't mind getting from L.A. to like the Bahamas or something at one point, or L.A. down to some place way south in Mexico, you know, just a real journey. I've done L.A. to New York actually a few times and around the East wow. Coast, and that's super fun, but I wouldn't mind, you know, something even bigger. Yeah, yeah, man, that's great. Thanks so much for your time, Thomas. I sure appreciate it. You got it. Well, how fun was that? Thomas Middleditch, Netflix star and HBO star, but really just a general aviation pilot flying around like the rest of us, uh, stretching his skills a little bit, getting in a little bit of trouble and using his training to fly out of it. And you know, what was great to hear was he started out with some air sickness and just worked through that out of his uh, love and desire for flying and I've talked to a lot of people that have that same situation, and it's probably motivating for them to know that you can work your way through that over time, like he did. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll run into him out at the GA airport one day, and he'd probably love to just chat flying with us. Until next time, alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. If you're enjoying these podcasts, hit the subscribe button and recommend us to your friends. If you can... Consider a donation at aopafoundation.org. That's aopafoundation.org. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thank you.